Welcome to the Educational Renaissance Podcast, where we promote a rebirth of ancient wisdom for the modern era. We seek to inspire educators by fusing the best of modern research with the insights of the great philosophers of education. Join us in the great conversation and share with a friend or colleague to keep the Renaissance spreading. Jason Barney here for Educational Renaissance, and I'm excited to share with you today about the classical distinction between the liberal arts and sciences. You know, uh, one of the encouraging recent developments in education is this recovery of the classical educational tradition of the liberal arts and sciences among Christian classical schools. Of course, we've already been laboring upstream since to most people, the term liberal arts simply refers to general studies or the humanities. Perhaps you've heard this term used this way for a liberal arts college. However, even the classical Christian school movement hasn't always held on to an important classical distinction. And that is this distinction between an art and a science. As a movement of classical Christian schools, we've, we've talked a lot about the liberal arts, especially the trivium, and more recently the quadrivium or mathematical arts. Recent books uh, like Kevin Clark's and Ravi Jain's The Liberal Arts Tradition have been careful to add in the sciences, including natural philosophy, or the body of knowledge about the natural world, moral philosophy, or the body of knowledge about human beings, and divine philosophy or metaphysics. Um, of course, we've also heard Dorothy Sayers call the liberal arts the lost tools of learning. And we've tried to apply her insights about how the trivium arts can map on practically to the different stages of a child's development. And that, therefore, the arts aren't exactly subjects in themselves, but more like a way of approaching each subject. But in the classical tradition, the difference between an art and a science was a little bit more subtle. A science is simple enough because it comes from the Latin word scientia, meaning knowledge. A science is therefore a body of knowledge that a person might master, know, or understand. Now the way to master a science is simply to learn and discover all the truth that one can about that area and integrate it so far as possible with everything else that one knows. An art, however, is not a body of knowledge, but an ability to create or produce something. So, for instance, a person who's mastered the art of architecture will have the ability to design sound and aesthetically pleasing buildings. The person skilled in the art of underwater basket weaving will be able to weave baskets while submerged underwater. An art is about the ability to make something. It's not primarily about knowing truths. Now this distinction goes all the way back to Aristotle when he defined the intellectual virtue of art or artistry as a state of capacity to make something involving a true course of reasoning. Whereas knowledge or science 
Greek episteme, is a state of capacity to demonstrate. In other words, someone who is skilled in the art of basket weaving has the ability to weave a basket correctly, based upon prior experience and practice, and according to the actual nature of the materials, the needs of a basket, a true course of reasoning. On the other hand, someone who has knowledge or has learned a particular subject or science is able to show or demonstrate that knowledge, whether through inductive or deductive reasoning. As the late Victorian British Christian educator Charlotte Mason said, whatever a child can tell, that we may be sure he knows, and what he cannot tell, he does not know. Now, Aristotle's distinction between the intellectual virtues of art and science became this crucial touchpoint for the classical tradition of the liberal arts and sciences. However, our modern classical revival movement has not always been so clear about this distinction. So in its clearest articulation then, the seven liberal arts were not subjects or bodies of demonstrable knowledge, but instead were the highly complex skills that students needed to be trained in over a course of years. Now, of course, under the general heading of philosophy, there was a science for every one of those areas. There was a science of grammar, since there was in the tradition a whole body of discovered truth about the grammar of various languages, or about logical reasoning, or the nature of the rhetorical task. There's a science for every subject. But that was viewed as distinct from training in the art. Now naturally, students of the liberal arts would gain knowledge of all kinds along the way, especially concerning the liberal art they were studying. Just as someone learning the art of basket weaving would learn many things about baskets and how they're woven. However, a student's ability to demonstrate their knowledge of basket weaving is a completely different thing from their ability to weave a basket correctly. Now, on the other hand, the liberal arts are a unique case because the products of grammar, dialectic, and rhetoric, for instance, are themselves the communicated products of knowledge, namely reading and interpretation, grammar, discussion and reasoning, dialectic or logic, and spoken or written persuasion, rhetoric. But this distinction still holds between the ability to make something, art, and pure knowledge, science. Now, how has the classical school movement grown in its understanding of this distinction? Well, if we go back to Dorothy Sayers' essay on the lost tools of learning, it's easy to see that this distinction between arts and sciences was important for her. She claims that an important difference between modern and medieval education was the emphasis on subjects versus, quote, forging and learning to handle the tools of learning, by which she means the trivium arts of grammar, logic, and rhetoric. As she wrote, Although we often succeed in teaching our pupils subjects, we fail lamentably on the whole in teaching them how to think. They learn everything except the art of learning. 
Now, Doug Wilson, in recovering and implying her essay, has emphasized um, particularly her mapping of the trivium onto the stages of a child's development so that the grammar of each subject is emphasized for young students, then the logic or reasoning or for older students, an eloquent expression of truth about a subject for the oldest. Now, back in 2006, Robert Littlejohn and Chuck Evans wrote the book Wisdom and Eloquence. And in this book, they argued against a strong emphasis on the trivium as stages of development, based on their analysis of the historical facts of the tradition. They also argued that the tools of learning are not the liberal arts themselves, but are skills, sub-skills like phonetic decoding, reading comprehension, critical thinking, research, public speaking, etc. The liberal arts, both trivium and quadrivium, for them are subjects, not these discrete skills that might be a part of it, according to, again, Little John and Evans in their book Wisdom and Eloquence. Now, it's important for us to concede their first point. The classical tradition has taught the trivium in many ways, but before Dorothy Sayers, it's almost impossible to find the idea that the trivium represents stages a child goes through in their development. As my friend and colleague, um, Patrick Egan, Dr. Patrick Egan has shown, there's actually a reliance on Piaget's early st stages of childhood development that Dorothy Sayers is engaging in here. Now, in the Roman period, if we go back into the ancient era, students would normally, for instance, go to a grammaticus to learn how to read and write in Greek in their own language, Latin. They would study authors. Uh, Quintilian, the famous Roman orator and educator, would discuss how the equivalent Latin word for the Greek grammatica was literatura, literature, or we might say literacy. And how, among other things, the student would learn to read literature, to read poetry specifically, scan the meter, analyze the meanings of words, read it aloud properly with attention to proper phrasing and accent, interpret it through all the necessary background information, whether that's historical or geographical or scientific. And you can see this in book one, chapter four of the Institutes of Oratory. That was training in grammar in Quintilian's day. And after that, a student would be sent to a rhetoric teacher like Quintilian to learn to speak publicly in every possible situation that might be needed in order to bring leadership to the public square. Now, after that, a, a, a young Roman noble's education was done unless the student wanted to go to Athens, say, or some other major city and study with the philosophers there. That, I think, is a very different picture of trivium education than what we might be used to. It's not the grammar, logic, rhetoric as stages of development paradigm. We have something more like grammar, though, uh, to begin, though they're doing things that we would do with our high school students um, as they learn to read the great books, for instance. And then they move to rhetorical training as the second and final major stage with potential studies in philosophy, which might have included some logic in there as the last stage. Are you ready to take your classroom or school to the next level? 
here at Educational Renaissance, we want to equip you with skills and practices that will help you achieve your goals as educators. Join us for our next live webinar and take a deep dive into the topics you've learned about through our blog posts, podcasts, books, and videos. Learn practical skills and get your questions answered to level up your classroom or school. Simply sign up for our next live webinar on our webinar page at educationalrenaissance.com. Learn more about upcoming webinars or find other downloadable content. If you believe teaching is a craft, then join us for our next webinar where you can be apprenticed to gain valuable skills and practices. Sign up at educationalrenaissance.com. But to answer Robert Littlejohn and Chuck Evans' last point about the liberal arts being subjects, we should go on to a more recent book by Kevin Clark and Ravi Jain, The Liberal Arts Tradition. Now, in their chapter on the liberal arts, they used Thomas Aquinas, who held Aristotle's distinctions close to his heart, in order to explain that the liberal arts are, quote, the tools by which knowledge is fashioned. And they go on to say, an art could be attained from an extensive foundation in action and imitation forming cultivated habits, say Clark and Jane, whereas, quote, a science can be in the mind alone and does not require any practice or the production of anything. Now, based on this distinction from Aristotle to Aquinas and into our own recovery movement, it seems to make the most sense to think of the trivium arts as something different than our modern subjects. They are the well-worn paths. They are complex imitative habits. They are the tools of learning. They are the skills needed to justify knowledge, to discover knowledge, and to justify it. Well, obviously, this little review of our movement's growing understanding of the trivium as arts, if this is true, then it changes how we should view the trivium. It doesn't necessarily mean that we should throw out our grammar, logic, and rhetoric textbooks, but it should radically reorient us around what we think we're doing when we're teaching grammar. Now, if grammatica is the ability to read and interpret text, to speak and write correctly, with all the sub-skills attached to it, like phonetic decoding, background knowledge, reading comprehension, etc., well then, what students need to master grammar in this sense is lots and lots of coached practice. They don't necessarily need another lecture. They need to read harder and harder texts in all sorts of subject areas. And they need to be actively coached by their teachers in how to do this well, in what needs to be known and understood in order to interpret this text correctly. And over time, with practice, students will become more and more literate. They will become grammarians, skilled readers and interpreters. Now, the same can be said for logic, or I prefer dialectic, the art of reasoning and discussion. In order to master this art, students need to do lots and lots of discussing, being forced to think 
carefully about what they've read. They need to learn to argue with one another respectfully, anticipate others' trains of thought, call out faulty reasoning in themselves or others. Most of all, they need accountable practice in discussing important matters at a higher and higher level. Mastering rhetoric, lastly, comes from the ability to uh, speak or write persuasively and knowledgeably about all manner of subjects. It's not the same as learning about the subject of rhetoric, the types, the proper divisions, rhetorical devices, and flourishes that can be used. Though all of these are all things that would be great for them to know, but a student can learn the science of rhetoric, be ready to spew forth all the definitions of every term, and yet be the least persuasive speaker or writer in the world. Well, this leads me to propose a twofold understanding of grammar, dialectic, and rhetoric. Each is both an art and a science, both a complex skill of communication and a traditional body of knowledge about that area. So everyone is right. Sayers, Wilson, Little John and Evans, as well as Clark and Jane. This is perhaps easiest to see if I use my absurd example of basket weaving. Imagine two different people who claim to be wise in the art of basket weaving. Now, one of them knows the whole history of basket weaving, can name all the important figures, describe key changes in different cultures' application of basket weaving, and he himself even has his own particular theories about why basket weaving developed as it did. But unfortunately, he has never actually woven a basket for himself. Now the other has never heard of any different way to weave a basket than the way she was taught by her mother growing up. And yet, she weaves baskets daily that only get better and better, sometimes departing from tradition with bold and innovative designs. The first person is wise in the science of basket weaving, the second is actually a trained basket weaver, an artist in her own right. Now, of course, many artists also know some of the science, and many scientists have a rudimentary practice of the art. And the same can be said of grammar, dialectic, and rhetoric. There are bodies of knowledge about these arts that one can master. One can become a grammarian. One can study the philosophy of logic or one can take courses in rhetorical studies at a university. Some amount of study in these sciences can help one to master the arts, just as knowledge about the history and various techniques of basket weaving is useful to the artist. But someone could be a powerful public speaker without any study of the history of rhetoric because of a combination of natural talent, imitation, and coached practice. Now this changes things, I think, for us as classical educators because it forces us to ask the question, which are we aiming for here? If you look at many of our textbooks in grammar, logic, or rhetoric, you have to admit that sometimes the method of the textbook seems to assume that the goal is primarily to teach our students knowledge about these subjects as if that were enough. This is to treat the liberal arts as if they were sciences, 
Now, don't get me wrong here. A science is a very good thing and can be helpful, especially if it is fused with appropriate practice. However, the sciences of grammar, logic, and rhetoric can be deadening if they are learned in the absence of training, training, hear me, in the arts. There's a reason in the tradition that the liberal arts preceded the sciences. And perhaps I should mention that it's a particular flaw of the Enlightenment and modernism that the sciences and being scientific are preferred to anything else. This may be one of the ways that we as classical educators have implicitly fallen prey to modern assumptions about education. At the same time, uh, I would venture to say we are not the first classical educators to have fallen prey to this error. For instance, John Locke, the British Enlightenment philosopher, in his work on education wrote this, For I have seldom or never observed anyone to get the skill of reasoning well or speaking handsomely by studying those rules which pretend to teach it. And therefore, I would have a young gentleman take a view of them in the shortest systems that he could find without dwelling long on the contemplation and study of those formalities. And that's from his Some Thoughts Concerning Education. Locke claims that learning rules won't make you either an eloquent speaker or a brilliant conversationalist nor will logical systems of analyzing mode and figure, predicates and predicables, teach a young gentleman to reason well. That requires, he goes on, to the imitation of great authors or thinkers and practice reasoning to the truth or speaking publicly. And so he recommends that young children be asked to narrate stories that they have heard from Aesop's fables, say, and to read great orators. It seems that even in Locke's day, the classical practices of the trivium, the liberal arts of language, had gotten crystallized into a deadening form where students learned the science, but not the art. They memorized rules for logic and rhetoric, but couldn't reason to the truth, let alone speak fluently. As Locke explains later on, there can scarce be a greater defect in a gentleman than not to express himself well, either in writing or speaking, but yet I think I may ask my reader whether he does not know a great many who live upon their estates, and so with the name should have the qualities of gentlemen who cannot so much as tell a story as they should, much less speak clearly and persuasively in any business. This, I think, not to be so much their fault as the fault of their education." End quote. Now this, uh, to me, is a haunting warning that we all should heed well in our movement in order to be sure that our schools don't fall prey to this same fault that Locke put his finger on in his day. We might be training young ladies and gentlemen who can spout off the right answers, but do not in fact have the ability to think, speak, and write, who have not in fact, as Dorothy Sayers would say, learned the arts of learning. Mm -hmm.